I'm all for sex positivity, but sometimes it does get kind of skewed to mean, or people at least perceive it as having as much sex as possible, having as many partners as possible, having the wildest sex possible. And that's not what it is. Sex positivity is respecting your own sexuality, respecting other people's sexuality, and really seeing sex and or sexuality, which are not the same thing, as a good thing. And what a wonderful gift for a partner to say, I take this very seriously and you're worth that to me. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode 179 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. You know my purpose, it is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one, not one, that wasn't truly brilliant at something. And so for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to certified sex educator, August McLaughlin. August is a journalist, author, and host and producer of Girl Boner Radio. What a name. A true story-based podcast that was named one of the best sex podcasts you should be listening to in 2022 by Romper. It was also named one of the top feminist podcasts by Belisa. <laughs> oh my God, Perfect. August, did I get it wrong? I love how you said it, but it's Belisa. Okay. Belisa. I actually asked her before we started two minutes ago, how do you pronounce it? I wrote it all out for myself and I still had it in my brain a certain way. Anyway, August articles and expertise have been featured in a range of publications, including Cosmopolitan, The Washington Post, O, The Oprah Magazine, and Forbes. She's the author of Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment, which was featured in the New York Times and co-author of With Pleasure, Managing Trauma Triggers for More Vibrant Sex and Relationships, which she wrote with therapist Jamila. Jamila, yeah. <laughs> I just, I looked at how it's pronounced. I and know, I, still I do the wrong. same Jamila. thing so often. Jamila M. Dawson. Yeah. August has also presented on a TEDx stage and at the CDC headquarters in Atlanta. Being diagnosed with ADHD at 29 and learning to manage it completely changed August's life. She's built a career out of her passions and loves connecting with fellow neurodivergent folks. When she isn't writing or working on her podcast, you can find August hiking or spending time with her zoo, which includes a pit bull mix, Via, and a little green parrot named Wombly. August, did I get all of that right except for the pronunciations? You did. Tracy, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Well, I'm excited to have you too. In fact, August, 
I'm friggin' scared. So we are going to wade into this slowly. Okay. (laughs) I am so down for that. We can go at whatever pace you want to, and there is no judgment about how you're (laughs) feeling. I am here for this. I told my daughter, she's 23, that, oh, yeah, I'm interviewing sex educator August McLaughlin. And she's like, um, what did she say to me? That's really great, mom. Just don't be weird. Aw, <laughs> that's so, so funny. Anyway, I'm, I'm not kidding. We're going to go into this really slowly. So the way we're going to start is, can we talk about your ADHD diagnoses first? Absolutely. Yes. So my diagnosis actually came about at a time in my life where I was feeling much more stable than I had in probably all of my adulthood so far, which is interesting. I had already been through a severe eating disorder. I had gone through a lot of big stresses with finances and career and rocky relationships and just so many chaotic kind of roller coaster-like things. But when I was diagnosed, I was in a really healthy relationship. In fact, I was newly married to this great guy. I was doing work that I loved. And so I couldn't blame these other circumstances anymore for my challenges. In the past, I I was always trying to figure out what was kind of quote unquote wrong with me or um, maybe I need to move to this place or, you know, dump this person or start a relationship here. And I couldn't do any of those things. And I was still struggling. And kind of the catalyst for me seeking help was that I was really, really drawn to, I would say I felt a, a compulsive need to take these really dangerous diet pills. And mm. I was completely past the eating disorder I mentioned. In fact, I had no desire to lose any weight at all. I just felt better when I took these pills. And so I was like, am I addicted? Do I have a dependency? Is this a part of an eating disorder that I'm just not aware of, that you cannot have those same you know, desires and motivations and still be struggling? And so I was really concerned because these pills what happens is because they're not regulated like medications are, a new stimulant-based pill would come out mm-hmm. and it would cause side effects and worse, sometimes death. Um, they can be oh, pretty geez. Yeah, they can be dangerous. And so I wanted to live a healthy life. Like I didn't want to have these problems. I couldn't figure out why I still wanted these pills. And I actually ordered online because you couldn't buy them in a store anymore because they were you know, dangerous. And so I ordered some and I felt, I was like, I need to change. I, I don't understand this. And so I went to see a therapist. Oh, and and you had no, just so we're clear, no interest at all in losing weight. It was simply because you felt better when you were on this particular diet pill, which was some form of stimulant. Exactly. Ah, Yes. I've heard this many times before, by the way. Oh, interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. So I told my therapist, what I was experiencing and was a little surprised that she wasn't like, well, I think you should go to rehab. I really didn't know what she was going to say, but I just knew I needed help. Like I was starting to, I was hiding this from my Mm -hmm. husband too. And I'm like, this just feels wrong to me. And they helped me, but I still felt off. They weren't only helping me. They were also potentially causing some kind of side effects or it didn't feel like my brain was in like great chemistry. It just felt like I was better on them than off. (laughs) And so she started asking me these questions. And I was like, how did you know that about me? Like, these questions were all about ADHD. But I thought she was going to ask me more about diet stuff or, you know, I'd been in lots of different therapy before for my eating disorder in the past. None of that came up. And we just talked and talked and talked. And I think it was maybe the second or third session that she said, you know, I would really love to test you for ADHD. I think that may be what you're you're dealing with here. And I just got chills all over my body right now remembering because the test that she guided me through or provided for me was even more validating. <laughs> I was like, this is the best I've ever done on a test. I'm getting them all. <laughs> I'm getting a very high score. And 
I then went to a psychiatrist after she diagnosed me with, with ADHD and he prescribed a stimulant medication. And the first time I took it, I had this just completely different feeling in myself. I felt more like myself almost immediately, I would say. And I actually took a nap in the day, like daytime nap for the first (laughs) time, maybe ever. I didn't even nap as a toddler. So I, (laughs) my brain really needed a break is what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was completely life-changing and amazing. So once you finally knew it was ADHD and you had the benefit of hindsight, what were some of the symptoms that you were always wondering about? You know, I think you had mentioned like, why am I like this? You know, why do I do this? But you now recognize them as, oh, duh, it was ADHD. Yeah. uh, One was probably the biggest thing was just, I always just sensed that I was different. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then as I thought more about it and I learned more about ADHD. There were so many signs. Probably the earliest one was I had what I now realize was restless leg syndrome when I was really little, thus the no napping and the like. I I remember nights when I was really little where I would just be laying in bed and I'm like, my legs are like trembling basically. And I'm just waiting for the sun to come up. And I, I don't think I even slept. Um, I was very hyperactive as a, as a little kid And that went in good and not so good ways. I was very fortunate to be raised by parents who made a decision to really raise me and my siblings as individuals. There wasn't this pressure to, quote unquote, act normal. Um, That was great. But school was much harder. Some teachers understood it. Um, Just my differences without having this term for it. Early on, I did have one teacher who was just wonderful. She actually let me build a paper grocery store in the back of a room that we were. What was that? You know, a, a paint yeah, store? Um, a, a grocery store made out of paper. Oh, <laughs> in the back of a classroom. <laughs> I was just. I had to be active and creating all the time, and she let me do that. She even let me teach my fellow classmates how to crochet on pencils because I couldn't sit still during math class. But then my teacher the next year just thought I was a huge behavioral problem. And so I started getting in trouble. And then I would say puberty was especially difficult for me. I, all the hormonal changes, you know, combined with the the dopamine issues I was, I was dealing with really shifted things for me paired with moving to a new school and city. So I was the new kid and I had the strictest teacher who I'd been told was so mean and so awful. And I was like, I already was getting in trouble before with a teacher who wasn't as bad. And so I was terrified of her. And so I really forced myself to try and just like sit still, be good. And that's when I started masking, I think, was really concealing my symptoms. And it was very detrimental. And so that not being able to move, I don't know if that's what triggered this or if this was just a natural evolution in my own brain chemistry, but Mm -hmm. I started to get very much more of the, um, like the hyperactivity all got absorbed inside me. So my brain was still busy, but it felt like my brain also was filled with glue. Like I couldn't, I couldn't think the only classes I could pay attention to in high school were like choir (laughs) and, um, a, a writing class and I'm a writer. So that makes sense. I was really into it, but, um, yeah, so many, so many different things. I also don't think I would have developed the eating disorder had I been diagnosed earlier. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I think that the eating disorder really became a way for me to try to balance out my brain. And it also became my hyperfocus. It was like this one place where I could, quote unquote, achieve. If I lost weight, if I controlled my food, there was something happening that I, I really do think I was trying to make things okay chemically. But then Mm -hmm. there is that control issue involved with eating disorders, and I couldn't control so many things. And so I I also was then exercising, which was good at first, and then went too far, which was very unhealthy. Um, Mm -hmm. But the activity was helpful for my brain. So yeah, so I, I really do think that if somebody had 
taken me aside and said, hey, you know, let's talk about how you're feeling. I mean, I just, people didn't seem to really notice that I was struggling, which made it very lonely for me. You were also, I think I read somewhere modeling I as was. well, right? So there was just this, uh, I'm sure, emphasis on being as thin as you possibly could be. Yeah. So it's interesting because I already had pretty poor body image. And I think, you know, that's common in general, unfortunately. But I also think that the struggle in my my brain was was fueling that. And so I was attracted to modeling, not because I'm into fashion. <laughs> I've never really been. Uh, people sometimes ask me fashion questions and I'm like, that's not, no. I liked the performance part of it because I was in theater. Yeah. And so that part was fun for me. But but truly, I was trying to have value. And I think that we are taught mm-hmm. that that is how you have value, especially as a, as a woman. And so... Yeah, so it definitely I don't think that the modeling industry caused the eating disorder, but it definitely made it a lot easier to to have and it made things worse and I was actually after high school I moved to New York and I was modeling for one of the top agencies in the world and um was kind of you could say at the top of my game as they say and my struggles were getting deeper and deeper and I was so I was so hyper focused on the modeling. Like I was, I could actually sit, be completely still for these long, long shoots because I was so into it. But my hyper focus was very misplaced, and it became very detrimental and life threatening. And when I was living in Paris, I actually collapsed. Someone found me, and I was diagnosed initially with anorexia, which has a really high mortality rate. I was very, very, very lucky to to make it past that. And it was actually, I credit two things for helping me thrive and survive after all of that. And the first was embracing my sexuality, which is what led to all of the work I'm doing today. And mm-hmm. then the second, years after that, was being diagnosed with ADHD. One of my symptoms, and I, I don't know, maybe you've heard about this from other folks, but I get body dysmorphic if I'm not on medication, which it's it's very common. In fact, it's also really common with boys, Mm. you know, young men and, you know, all the bodybuilding. And I have this theory that, you know, people that are really into bodybuilding, most of them are ADHD, especially the women, you know, I mean, if you think about it. But I know there's a there's a doctor out of Harvard, actually. He's lovely. Roberto Olivardia, who has written a book all about body dysmorphia and uh, young men and ADHD. So, oh wow, I, think it's I need to find that. men and women. Yeah, yeah. I think I think these issues are universal for sure. That's fascinating to me and validating to hear. So, thanks for sharing that. So, once you were diagnosed, what are the main things that changed for you? <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh, it didn't change, you know. I I think the, <laughs> the biggest thing was probably my sense of self because I finally it's like I'd been on this mystery search through so much of my life and it just gave me this both this validation but also this like you can really be here feeling. I could be present in my life, I could watch TV <laughs> and pay attention, um, <laughs> like actual like whole shows. I still use Rewind a lot and I use captions. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah exactly. Oh my gosh, over and over and over. Um, but it allowed me to be more, I guess, yeah, present in my life, in my relationship, in relationships with with friends. Um, I just think that no- self-knowledge is, is so powerful. It um, helps me sleep better. Like I I had been misdiagnosed, as so many folks have, with depression, with anxiety. And I know some people have both or all three. Mm-hmm. I did not have depression or anxiety. I had those symptoms because of undiagnosed ADHD. Wow. So yeah. my anxiety like went away. I was having these heart palpitations before starting this medication that people warn about heart palpitations. But for me, it was the opposite. And so 
I have felt more peaceful in my life ever since. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing it. So before we get into our main topic, I want to tell you a little story. So I think I was a junior in college. I attended an event that I think it was put on by the Kinsey Institute, or at least the woman who spoke was somehow affiliated with the Kinsey Institute. And for those that don't know it, um, it was a nonprofit research institute at Indiana University that studied human sexuality. And I think I think it's closed or it merged with another institution. I'm not really sure, but that's not the point of the story. So the speaker was this amazing, engaging woman. She had blonde hair, but not straight blonde hair. It was this curly mess, but every curl fell fell like perfectly. And I still remember she walked into the auditorium and she was in all black. She had these really high strappy heels on and bright red lips. And I remember just being blown away by her and how comfortable she was talking about sex. And I cannot remember her name. I've tried to look her up over the decades, and I I still can't figure out who she is. But I remember at the time I thought, I want to do that. But I chickened out because she was more on the research end, and I had had my share of struggles in science. But anyway, I chickened out, but you didn't. And so I (laughs) want to know, August, how did you end up as a certified sex educator and podcast host of Girl Boner, which, by the way, is the best podcast name ever. I mean, you've been doing this for a while, and I <laughs> I was just so tickled by the name because I don't think people realize, podcasters realize when they're starting a podcast, how important the name is. You picked a winner. <laughs> oh, thank you. That means so much. So as I mentioned with the eating disorder, the first kind of wake-up call for me was sitting in a classroom a college class, and the teacher said, we're going to talk about sex today. This was a psychology class. And I realized I hadn't talked about sex to really anyone, like anyone. And so that set me on this, like, just so intense curiosity path. how old would you have path. been then? I was, I want to say 19. So I'd come back from Paris. I was actually in eating disorder treatment, like a day program. And then I was on the other days taking classes just to do something else. And yeah, so it was one of those classes. And I I didn't realize it till later, but the frustration and the curiosity and this mix of emotions I had about like, oh my gosh, I've never talked about this. Even with the person I was having sex with, we just didn't talk about sex. And it just lit a fire in me to figure this out and to look back on my own journey and why didn't I learn this and are these myths true and all of this stuff. It literally was the moment I stopped wanting to starve myself. So it still took years to get past the eating disorder, but it gave me this strengthening kind of first anger and then just deep curiosity. And one of the things I look back on was the fact that when I was a kid in that awkward sex ed class that a lot of us have that's like very fear-based and it's kind of abstinence and here's the STDs you don't want to have and (laughs) don't get pregnant – Um, I remember that quote-unquote male pleasure was alluded to, and there was nothing positive mentioned about women or girls or people with vulvas. And so I was actually on the schoolyard one day when I learned what a boner was, when people were just talking and joking around. And I literally thought in that moment, well, wait, what about girl boners? So this question (laughs) was like burning a hole in my mind (laughs) for so long. And it wasn't until years later, again, that college class and then like through experience, I was like, oh my gosh, this is just like a catastrophe that it is so stigmatized and that, you know, that we learn so many damaging things about sex and sexuality. And I had another big wake up call in my, um, gosh, so I think I was about 30. Let me know if you want me to like avoid certain language. I know some people don't like sexual terms used, but it was my first time masturbating was at age 30. And I had another- 30? Yeah. Yeah. And you have ADHD? (laughs) Oh, I was very sexually active, but I did not masturbate. Okay. Which led to a lot of relationships that shouldn't have been relationships because I also grew up learning that if you have sex, you're supposed to marry that person. And so- Even though I didn't take that super seriously, well, once I did, I literally married someone I just met. 
But um, <laughs> I, I also carried with me this shame I didn't even know was there. That's like, sex has to be with someone who I'm going to have this serious relationship with. And it's also something attached to another person. Like my sexuality was never my own first. So I kind of went through like another puberty, <laughs> at like age 30, where I was like, oh my gosh, do people know about this like masturbation thing? Do they, <laughs> people need to know about this. And obviously I knew people knew about it, but it just made sense to me that this was my, my path because when I was in Paris and when I had passed out and I had that really close to death type of experience, I still had, even though I was really, really depressed and felt lost in my life, there was this sense of like hope that I couldn't get rid of. And I just had this sense that there was something for me to do. Like there's, there's gotta be mm -hmm. something that I can attach my passion to. I knew I had a lot of passion and never was I as depressed as when I didn't have a place to put it. And yeah. I was like, oh, this is my story. Like people had asked me before, why don't you write your eating disorder memoir? And I'm like, that is, does not feel like my story. Yes, it's, it's a piece of it, but Girl Boner feels like my story. And so <laughs> I started it as a blog series and then it quickly led to the podcast, which is the okay, focus wait, wait, of my wait. work now. Hold on one second. So I yeah. always want to know kind of what happened first, second, third, because I have to make my brain linear <laughs> because it's all over the place. So that I understand. So you're in college and you are studying what? I was studying psychology at the time. Okay. And so what happened after you graduated from college? What was the first job? Can you just kind of give us that linear progression? Sure. So <laughs> I will <laughs> give it to you in a linear fashion. It is not a linear journey. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I'll give it to you in order. Okay. So I was... I was in college and I I actually was enjoying it because it was an independent study program that I was in. The honors program at this particular school, you got to make up your own curriculum. And for the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, like I love school. I was so into it. Um, but then a couple of years in, I had this wonderful teacher who was more of a mentor to me who actually taught the psychology class where we talked about sex for the first time for me. And she saw some value in my writing. And she was like, you know, I really encourage you to, to pursue this or to write down your story. She thought I maybe could go into research. She had all these ideas and dreams that I had never had for my, myself. So I ended up transferring schools. I, I broke up with uh, the long-term boyfriend I'd had. I started dating at the same time. So I would have like these short little relationships with people because I had sex, as I mentioned. So, so that was happening at the same time. So then I transferred to a different school that was much more traditional and hated it. Like I couldn't sit still in the classes. I had major disagreements with just the ways that things were run and even the things that were being taught. I just felt like a misfit for that, that school. And I ended up deferring my enrollment, although I made lots of mistakes while doing that. So it ended up being uh, a big, big hassle. But I, my plan was to take a break and then just see what would happen because I was feeling so much healthier and I had kind of felt like the eating disorder kind of robbed me of some of the really fun parts of the fashion industry. I missed performing. I missed traveling. And I no longer had this intense fear of you know, my health failing. So I didn't feel like I needed to be right next to my parents in Minnesota. Um, so I'd been there for several years and it, I thought it's time to branch out. And that's when I married someone quite impulsively, uh, which is another story. But we ended up moving to Miami where I was doing commercial work. Uh, I was doing like models who want to act type of work. And I was so excited when I finally got to speak. <laughs> I remember my first speaking line was, uh, let's have beer. And it was like such a joy. <laughs> I tried to put so much depth into this character, like where is she from? Why does she love beer? All of this stuff. It was really <laughs> kind of hilarious. Um, but I started taking and acting she classes. Yes. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it was a really 
interesting time in my life and ended up getting divorced almost as, as impulsively as I'd gotten married. Um, but the year after that was a, was a strengthening year for me in a lot of ways. I was living on my own, supporting myself through modeling and, and some acting. And my goal was to move to LA to act. And again, I've always had this passion in me and I, I need to be able to direct it at something. And so it went from modeling to a very destructive eating disorder to acting and acting led me to Los Angeles. And that led me to writing. I realized during an acting class that I really, really, really <laughs> love writing and storytelling. And so I ended up impulsively um, quitting acting and going full force into writing. And I had a background in nutrition by that point because I'd been studying nutrition for my own recovery and I had some certifications. So I started doing some nutrition work uh, and also nutrition writing was was kind of my entry point into journalism. And that led toward my life-changing orgasm, as I call it, when I masturbated for the first time. And I just knew that it was time to use this platform that I'd built. I had a blog that had a fairly sizable audience and I wanted to write about sexuality. And so my first post was my sex ed story and how my curiosity about girl boners started. And that was about how long ago? That was around age 30. So like okay, so 11, 12 years ago. So this happened all right after you were diagnosed? Uh, no. Well, okay. Because you were diagnosed oh, yes. at 29, right? Yes. The launch of Girl Boner and that big epiphany in my own sexuality, yes. Those were both uh, within about a year of being diagnosed. Okay. So you have interviewed so many people about sex and sex and ADHD, what are some of the main takeaways or common themes that kind of keep coming up? Oh, there's so many. One is that sex and orgasm can feel like the one place where you feel present. And so you might be more into sex than you would be if you didn't have ADHD. It might feel like a necessary therapy even. It's like the one place that we can calm our brains down. So it can mm -hmm. feel like a meditation for some people. It can feel like necessary medication almost. Like it can feel like a therapy in a way. Um, and so some people might have a um, higher interest in sex than they would if they did not have ADHD. And then on the kind of flip side of that, which is also something I hear about pretty often, is you can feel so kind of distracted by other things in your life or really hyper-focused on something not sex-related, that sex is just not on your radar at all. And it takes effort to try to kind of get into that mindset. I hear from a lot of people who feel shame around that because they feel like they're letting a partner down. And actually, I've, I hear that about people who have a higher interest in sex too, where they feel like they aren't quote unquote normal or they aren't, especially if you're a woman who's dating a man, for example, we learn that men are the ones who are really into sex. And so I've heard from women who say that they thought there was something wrong with them because they had a higher interest in sex or that their partner wasn't really attracted to them. When in fact, attraction and arousal, these are all very individual things that are not based on sex or gender. So it's completely normal to have either response and there's nothing wrong with you if you face either of those and they both have kind of their challenges and their, their bright spots. And then there are a lot of people who go back and forth between both. Maybe they're really hyper-focused on this like new passion that they have, or they're just really stressed to the max because they've, they're overwhelmed from saying yes to too many things, which I think we can fall into um, if we're not careful. And when we're exhausted, you know, who's going to want to have sex. So those things can happen. But I do think that overall, it can really be a, a strength, especially the passion and sensitivity. Um, one other thing that I hear about is sensory sensitivity. So not everybody with ADHD experiences this, uh, but 
you might have a really strong aversion to certain smells or textures or sounds. So I've heard from folks who are like, oh, the smell of that lube or the smell of condoms turns me off, for example. So in those cases, it's all about awareness. Once you know what turns you on, what gets you going and what turns you off or makes sex unappealing, then you can better navigate that. So it's like anything else that we do in life, right? We have (laughs) things that work for us and things that don't work for us. So rather than focusing on everything that doesn't work, maybe if we focused on what works, more of what works would come into our, you know, horizon. It's so true. I mean, it's, it's amazing what giving ourselves grace can do in our whole lives and including (laughs) our sex lives. So I have this theory that for hyperactive ADHD, and I want, I want to know what you think. So for hyperactive ADHD women, we tend to be the ones that are driven, you know, fearless, bold. We just kind of, you know, go in. And I think that what's responsible for that, and I think science has proved that out as well, is higher testosterone. So if we have higher testosterone, wouldn't it make sense that sex might be a hyper focus for us? Ah, yeah. I mean, that definitely could play a role. Sex is a really multidimensional thing. And so is arousal and desire. So when we talk about testosterone, it's a faster moving hormone when it comes to sex and arousal, but estrogen is not less sexual. That's one of these kind of like myths that we learn. If you have low estrogen, you have less interest in sex too. Mm-hmm. So I think that the difference would be the testosterone might lead you to feel more intense or aroused faster. For example, you might have, there's different kinds of arousal. There's spontaneous desire and there's responsive desire. And most people kind of vary between those throughout life in different situations. But in general, if you have a higher testosterone level, you might be a bit more spontaneous in your desire. You see something sexy and it's like swing. <laughs> you are swing. You are already. I just love that word. I need like a swing sound effect. I haven't found a good one yet, but um, <laughs> yeah. And so there definitely could be some, some truth in that. And if you have more responsive desire, which would be perhaps if you were not as much of the hyperactive type of ADHD. It doesn't mean that you're not a sexual person. It just means you might need more time to get into it. Well, I wonder how much of it too is if you're more hyperactive, you tend to be kind of more in your body rather than in your head, right? You're just moving all the time. And versus if you are more inattentive, you tend to be more in your head. So I would think that maybe, you know, staying kind of staying on focus might be a little bit more difficult because there's so many other things to think about. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. So anything else? Definitely. So there's something called new relationship energy. And oh, yeah, dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. which is like ADHD candy, basically. Mm-hmm. And that can be really appealing. It can also potentially lead us to want to start new relationships again and again to to have that, that boost. I know I went through that. It's also a reason that some people with ADHD are more attracted to like polyamorous relationships and, um, non-traditional quote unquote types of relationships. At the same time, there are people, and I relate more to this where more than one relationship would be like way too much for me. It's even just the calendar piece of like (laughs) scheduling. Oh my gosh. Um, But Again, absolutely. It's, it's what works for you. But I have heard from folks who are like, oh my gosh, it makes me feel so good to have like multiple partners and, and all of that. But you do need to, if you are into that NRE, you need to keep it in check or find Wait, ways. What's NRE? So that is new relationship energy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because the problem is the way our brains work you know, I guess they've done studies on dopamine. And if you give someone the exact same hit, you know, every single time and it's consistent, then we don't want it anymore. Right. What we need is that, um, oh gosh, I'm not explaining this correctly, but that, you know, if you're, for example, they have these computer programs and we really struggle when, you know, for example, every time, you know, a red ball comes up, you have to hit the hit the space bar. And so if the red button keeps coming up, 
at consistent intervals, we do actually worse versus your neurotypical person does better. When we, when in between the red ball comes the blue square and the blue circle, then we tend to do better because it's not as consistent. Am I, yes. am I making any sense? Perfect so I sense. would think that would apply to relationships and that new relationship energy that you're talking about as well. Once it gets consistent, it just becomes more boring because you expect it, right? So you are bringing up such an important point. And I think that this is one that is somewhat universal, regardless of what type of ADHD you have, because we do want that novelty, right? Mm -hmm. We want something new. And so what can really help us feel really connected to our sexuality is to have variety in our sex lives that doesn't need to be different partners, unless that's something that you've chosen and you're going about it ethically and all of that. But it also can be you like to have a variety of different sex toys, or you do role-playing, or you have sex in a different room. If you're having the same exact kind of sex over and over again, it may not keep our interest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> When you're talking about, about all this, and then we know about rejection sensitivity dysphoria, is that it? RSD, rejection sensitive dysphoria. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Mm -hmm. um, I always mix it up with reward deficiency syndrome. <laughs> so oh, I could see that. Yeah. yeah, all the time. So I have to think about it. So rejection sensitivity, how would that play out in relationships? Because yeah, we might want all the newness, but can we manage it? because of the rejection piece. I remember when my son was diagnosed, actually Marcus wasn't in there. The psychologist was talking just to um, my husband and me. And um, he said something about those kinds of uh, men, they attach. And that's exactly how I am. I attach, which is why um, I have always had to be in kind of like one relationship. It needs to be a serious relationship because that's just the way I am. I attach and I can't handle all of the emotional stuff that comes with, you know, all these different relationships and someone not attaching. Am I making sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that loyalty is one of the traits that many people with ADHD oh. have and relate to. Like I love fiercely. I think so many of us are, we're very yeah. passionate about the people that we care about and so absolutely, I think that definitely plays a role. And as far as RSD, oh my goodness. First of all, I love that you talk about it because it is such a common symptom that is so under discussed. And I used to struggle with it so much. I can share a, just, a, it's, it's going to sound like a very benign example, but this is before I knew what this actually was. I, I remember my partner and I, we were just giving my dog medication and I don't even remember the exact words or exchange, but it was essentially like I was kind of in his way when he was trying to do this injection. And he kind of snapped at me in this just like really light way. He wasn't like yelling at me or bullying me. And he didn't love how it came out, but it was just like a comment, right? And I went from having a good day, feeling pretty good to <laughs> like... This emotional turmoil that lasts, I mean, literally in a second, I felt fatigue through my whole body. I had to fight tears all day. I felt exhausted. It just threw me. And that's actually what led me to look up rejection sensitivity, like to figure out why. Because in the past, before I was diagnosed, I always was like, I know I'm really sensitive. I would say mm. I get the emotional flu, like all this stuff. Oh, the and emotional flu. I've never heard yeah. that. That's brilliant. It felt like that to me. It felt like a physical and emotional illness that I would go through. And so, yeah, once I realized, oh, this is a thing, that awareness went so far. And the other thing it did was it really helped my relationship because my partner was like, oh my gosh, like he read the article about it too. And he was like, this makes perfect sense. It's what's happening in your brain. And it has become less and less. And I will say, I interviewed this wonderful fellow sex educator, Rachel Rose, who also has ADHD. And she talked about how she feels that rejection sensitivity, a lot of it has to do with us growing up and feeling rejected so often. We're yep, not feeling different. Yep. Yes. 
Yes. And it completely shifted things for me when she said that, because I had so much more compassion for myself. I was like, oh, when that happens, I'm thinking of myself as a three-year-old kid feeling like I'm too much. And it, it really helped. I still would feel the feelings, but it would go away past. It would, it would go past. I can't say it. (laughs) I'm going to clap. So we, it would pass. (laughs) It would pass quicker. Yes. And so that was helpful. And then I ended up doing EMDR as well, the Mm -hmm. eye movement therapy. And I think that's very helpful for rejection sensitivity, but any intimate relationship, when somebody has high sensitivity, when they are prone to this kind of like rejection sensitivity feelings, they shouldn't break a relationship. If they do, the relationship is probably not the right one because it's something beautiful about us too, that we feel things so deeply and the right person will hopefully love you through it and and help you get that understanding. And it can also bring challenges. So for example, if you're feeling, if you're having sex and somebody makes a, a comment, I don't, I don't really like it that way, for example. And in your soul, you're like, oh my gosh, I've been completely rejected as a sexual being. Like that just washes over you. That's a buzzkill, you know? So it can definitely come up, but it can also strengthen relationships. If we just talk about those things that are tough to talk about, it's like sex. If we, if we really step into those vulnerable conversations, it just goes better. We give ourselves that grace we were talking about. You know, it's interesting when it comes to relationships, I have definitely had many experiences where it's all about the thrill of the catch. But then once you, you know, once they're interested, you're kind of bored and uninterested. But then every once in a while, there would be someone where you would just, or I would just literally attach. And once I attach, that is when the RSD could play out versus the other ones I could have cared less about, which I guess that makes sense. It does. And you bring up another really important point and something that I've noticed, and I don't know of research on this specific topic. This is purely my own observation and experience, but I do think that because we are highly empathetic people too, often we want to often help people like we are <laughs> yes. <laughs> to a fault sometimes. And so I think we can fall into damaging relationships and lock onto them and want to help that person and make it our mission. And I went through that and I, I dated somebody who I'm pretty sure had some kind of sociopathic personality disorder. It was very abusive and my rejection sensitivity dysphoria was off the charts And I kept trying to help him. And I thought I could, I thought I could be that person to, you know, we see the good in people and, and there was some good in that relationship, but the harm was there and it was a really damaging thing. And I've heard from many people who end up like high empathy and low empathy. Sometimes those two kind of attract in a, in a dangerous way. And so I think that as we learn more about ourselves and we take care of ourselves and we do understand how our brains work, we may not be so prone to that kind of abuse. That makes perfect sense. And I think that because I have such high empathy, I knew that, again, I I just always had to be in this really serious relationship for sex to make sense for me. And I'll probably get mocked for it. But it was because I knew that that's what I could handle. I'm the kind Mm. of person who attaches. And so, you know, and I've I've mentioned this to my daughter and she just kind of looks at me cross-eyed. But I think because I find sex so important in a relationship, it was just so important for me to be really attached and really care about someone. And I think it's because of, you know, who I am. I knew I just couldn't handle it otherwise. Yeah. And I think that is beautiful. It's you knowing yourself and what you need in a relationship. I don't think there's anything silly about that at all. I think now we have, you know, the sex positive movement that's really important. And I, of course, I'm I'm all for sex positivity, but sometimes it does get kind of skewed to mean, or people at least perceive it as having as much sex as possible, having as many partners as possible, having the wildest sex possible. And that's not what it is. Sex positivity is respecting 
your own sexuality, respecting other people's sexuality, and really seeing sex and or sexuality, which are not the same thing, as a good thing. I mean, you can be asexual and sex positive, and you may never have sex with people. You still have a sexuality. So I think the awareness of our of our own sexuality and, and knowing that we get to define it is a wonderful thing. And what a wonderful gift for a partner to say, I take this very seriously and you're worth that to me. Yeah, I just absolutely love what you're saying. I'm a total feminist and I believe this for both men and women, right? And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, I have, I'm the mother of a, you know, a teenage, well, he just turned 20, 20 year old son now. And I feel the same way for him. I mean, obviously you have to do what works for you. I completely get that. But I think in our society, you know, this toxic masculinity where, you know, it's just all notches on their belt. I think that's damaging to men as well. Oh, it's so damaging. And I will say about 40% of my listenership is male identifying. And the ones I hear from are just super thoughtful guys. And I have heard, actually, I'll tell you the, the episode I've gotten the most gratitude from men for is about small penis pageants. I did an episode where I wait, 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 say that again. Small penis pageants. Yes. Okay. Tell me what that is. Tell us what that is. So a pageant. So picture like a a beauty pageant type of thing, uh, less formal though. And (laughs) it was a very, it was meant to be a body positive event where these, I think they were all cisgender men and they all had a small penis and they competed for different things. And it was meant to say, you know, small penises are great. And I learned about it because uh, a man actually from my home state who I, I did not know, but he reached out to me and said, I competed in this contest. I'd like to talk about it. And so I did an episode about small penises and his experience and really debunked some different myths around that. Cause it really mm-hmm. is a source of shame for, for so many folks. Absolutely. And, and women do this too, right? By, mm-hmm. oh, size matters and all of that BS. Uh, and yeah. oh my gosh, I would just much rather have, you know, a partner who really gives a damn and wants to be there and cares about me. Right. It's so true. And I think it's really tragic that the biggest insult that we can give to, especially a straight cisgender man to be, to say, oh, he has such a small penis or you, you yeah. make some small dick joke. And Mm-hmm. that just to me is not okay. I mean, we shouldn't be body shaming anybody. And as they say, it's not the the size of the ocean. It's the motion in the ocean <laughs> <laughs> that matters. So um, yeah. And I hear from so many guys who are like, oh. I'm not turned on all the time. Like my partner has a higher sex drive or libido. And mm-hmm. I feel like less of a man. I've heard that from numerous people. And I just... That makes me sad. And it also just motivates me to keep having conversations like this one because it's so important. I mean, we're all just individuals and we all had probably garbage sex ed and our our parents had worse sex ed than we did. And sex ed is still not required in many states. It's not required to be scientifically accurate in many states. It's it's incredible what I've asked probably easily over a thousand people what they've learned, what they learned about sex growing up. And it doesn't matter if you're 20 or you're 80, 98% of people learned something really scary. So it's also okay if you feel a little confused or if you feel a little, am I doing this right? You know, is this weird about me? I get so many questions like that. And and the answer is never, oh yes, you're definitely weird. The answer is (laughs) thank you for asking because so many people relate to you. You're just, you're not the only one. And I think that applies to ADHD and, and sexuality too. It's whatever you're going through, there's another beautiful bouncy brain out there who's the same way. Absolutely. So what are the ADHD traits, um, August, that you feel are responsible for your success? Hmm. I'm definitely very creative. I think that my empathy is a, is a huge piece of my ADHD too, from even just growing up and feeling a bit different. That helps me in all of my work. I'm good in a crisis. So when things go wrong, I, I, I jump to the bat and, um, I'm pretty good with that. And I think that my, my hyper-focus, especially now that it's in a healthy place, um, management like medication and awareness have helped me really 
have my hyper-focus be something that is an, an asset in my life where I can have that passion and not let it go to these extremes where I don't have anything else going on in my life. And also I just, I'm willing to dip into the taboo. And I think that that is something that the sex ed world probably needs. And it's something that I think neurodivergent folks are much more willing to do. Like, I think there's that social justice sensitivity. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely have that. And so I've always felt like we can make the world better. So why the heck aren't we doing it? So August, is it uncomfortable at all for you to talk about sex or is this something that you just were born to do this? It's just been natural from the get-go. You know, once I really stepped into my sexuality and had realized that I hadn't talked about it, it really did kind of start opening up floodgates for me. To me, sexuality it's not that different from talking about like the weather or other parts of our health, which is a strength. And it's also been a challenge for me because before I had a podcast, I just thought I could just talk about this stuff to anyone. Not like at the grocery store. I'm like, hello, let's talk about, you know, vulvas and penises or something (laughs) by the cucumbers. But, um, no, but I, I definitely would, even with friends, I would just be like, Hey, do you want to talk about, you know, I would just talk about these sexual things sometimes. And I did notice some discomfort in certain cases when I would do that. And I realized I was kind of, that's, that's not really consensual to just bring up these topics that are very heavy for some people. Yeah. And so, so I am comfortable. I mean, there are certainly things that I'm less comfortable talking about, but sexuality, I have such passion about speaking about. I will say I started out by sharing a lot from my own personal journey and I have shifted. That must be even more uncomfortable though. No, I could talk about anyone else, but to talk yeah. about myself. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because at first <laughs> I was just like, totally fine. Like it just felt normal to me. I don't know yeah. why I just, something just switched Good for in you. Me. And yeah, so it worked. Um, but then obviously for me, I didn't want to just talk about my own sex life every week. Like that's not really as helpful as I would like it to be. And so I help other folks tell their stories and there are tons of true stories in in my show. And sometimes I bring up something from my own life, but I did notice that recently I I released an episode about that life-changing orgasm that I brought myself to at 30. And it's, it's actually in my girl boner book. And so I I did it as an episode where I read it and I added some like sound effects and music (laughs) and I was like, oh my gosh, I was feeling like a little sweaty. Like it was because I hadn't gotten that vulnerable in a long time, but it also was an immersive experience. I literally was like taking people through me, you know, Uh tantalizing my own clitoris. And so it's like, it felt vulnerable also because I wrote the story a while ago. And I think we judge our work in the past very easily. But I also was like, you know what, that it didn't feel scary in a, in a harmful way. It just felt butterflies in a way that was like, okay, does this help people? Mm. If so, then yes. And I actually have a little mantra that I use sometimes when I am feeling nervous. And I just say, passion speaks louder than nerves. And that helps me every time. Wow. You know, what's really interesting too is <laughs> you were going in, you know, to the grocery store and around your friends and you're talking about sex and they're just like, oh my gosh. But then once you actually got out on a platform and you're really visible, it's so much easier to attract your people, right? That want to hear what it is that you have to say. And regardless of what the subject is on. Oh, that is so true, Tracy. I have met I would say most of my close friends now <laughs> yeah. I met through doing my show. I'm sure you feel this with, with your community too. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So I've definitely find support in like-minded people. And there is this feeling because there's so many walls up against us. We get blocked on Instagram all the time. We go into Facebook oh, jail. We yeah. can't promote things online. And there was a writer's conference that had to move locations because I was a keynote speaker. Oh, I my. mean, it was on the Bible belt. So a very conservative area. And I wasn't even talking about sex, but because of what I do, I was talking about body image and confidence and they gave them an ultimatum. And I was lucky because the organization hosting the conference moved so that me, and it was one other writer who was teaching a workshop on how to write about sex in novels, which is an important topic that a lot of people struggle with. Um, 
and she's in her eighties. So the two of us are like <gasps> really close. Velda Brotherton is her name. She's fabulous. Oh. But yeah, we're kind of in this, this fight together and it's meaningful. So what the hell with the United States? Why are we such prudes about bodies and sex and, you know, compared to other countries in the oh. world? Like what the hell? It is so messed up. Yeah. It's complicated. I mean, a lot of it is like patriarchal stuff. There's mm -hmm. a lot of purity culture in our culture from evangelical Christianity. There are definitely lots of sex positive Christians and people of all different faiths who are very sex positive. Um, but there are a lot of purity culture messages. I just interviewed somebody who her sex ed class was, and she's probably 10 years younger than me. And her sex ed class was, she had to stand in front of the room with a piece of tape and walk around and touch it to every boy's arm. It was like a piece of packing tape. And then a boy did the same thing and they were holding the packing tape and it was like covered in skin cells and all foggy. And the teacher said, this is what happens if you have sex with more than one person. Now here's a fresh piece of tape. This is the only way that you have a good sex life. Wow. You have sex with one person. So these messages really, they do, they come from a lot of them are religious um, ideas and a lot of it has to do with control and all those, those scary things that we're seeing so much of lately around like transgender mm -hmm. issues and um, abortion and all of these things. And it's, it's really, really heartbreaking. Um, I do think we're making progress, but we go forward and then we go back and we go forward yeah. and we go back. So yeah, it's hard. Absolutely. So what do you think the key to uh, living successfully with ADHD is? I think that self-awareness is the most important thing <laughs> and self-compassion, which I still work on. I think easing up on ourselves is so important. And I also think finding community is, is really helpful. I used to not talk at all about my ADHD because I'd heard so many people say it wasn't a real thing. Yeah. And I couldn't handle that judgment. I didn't want to have the argument. I mean, talk about something you're nervous talking about. I was like, I'll talk about orgasms, but I wasn't talking about my own brain. <laughs> um, and so now I do more and it's because I have found community. And I remember listening to your episode about ADHD friendships and I felt so seen. I actually wrote down the woman's name. I think it was Janet Murray yeah. who was on your show. And I felt so much less alone and just like free to be me listening to that. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. I'd never thought about that. And so the more we can learn and connect with like-minded people, like-brained people, it's wonderful. Like my favorite people are, are neurodivergent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. So August, are you working on something that you want to tell us about? Mm, I am very, very passionate about my podcast. Increasingly, I, I revamped it a couple of years ago when the pandemic started. I used to record in a studio and now I record from home and I switched to more of a narrative style where I do storytelling and I bring in a lot of folks with their true stories. So that's my absolute favorite place to connect with people. And I'm, I'm pretty interactive as well. So that's called Girl Boner Radio. You can search for Girl Boner on your app that you're listening on. Um, I also have several books about sexuality. I have one novel and a bunch of articles that I've written on my website, which is augustmclaughlin.com. Okay. So we are going to put all of this in the show notes. Um, don't leave me because I don't know if I have, well, your Instagram, right? That's at August McLaughlin. Mm -hmm. Pronounce it. Cause I know I'm going to mispronounce it. Sure. Yeah. It's at August McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Okay. And then your website, can you spell it? Sure. So it's August, like the month, A-U-G-U-S-T, then McLaughlin, M-C, laugh, L-A-U-G-H. L I N. And if it's easier to remember, which I think it probably is girlboner.org goes to my site as well. Got it. Okay. I'm going to write that one down. So we make but, sure we get that. In yeah. But don't type girlboner.org onto an Instagram post or um, Facebook because they won't let you. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. What? Yeah. If I put girlboner.org in my caption on Instagram, it won't let me post it. Oh. It doesn't even give me a message. It just won't let me post it. And then 
on Facebook, a warning message comes up. And then it says, if you do this too many times, we will blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I have a U.S trademark for this term. I have spoken for the CDC. Can you please put this on the internet? (laughs) I'm just trying to help people. I swear. (laughs) That is unbelievable. I'm curious if you type in boy boner, will that uh, get flagged too? (gasps) That is such a good question. We should try that because (laughs) I will say my trademark got rejected initially because of being quote unquote vulgar. And so an attorney friend of mine said, send them all of the, you know, find a list of the trademarks that went through that are sexually oriented toward men. There's gazillions. They never had a problem. And they're probably really gross. Yours is cute. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) I I love the term and most people are really joyful about it. And then every once in a while (laughs) you get a troll. Yeah. Whatever. Who cares? Right. They're not our people. Not our people. Yes. August, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Oh, such a pleasure, Tracy. And thank you for all you do too. I I just think your work is wonderful. Thank you so much. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with August, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyadsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.